I'm going to do something I have not done since I've been at Echo. I, in my preaching career, I've maybe only done this two or three times. The message that I, was, that I had prepared to preach this morning, I'm not going to preach that this week. I'll preach it next week. Um, towards the end of this week, I felt like God was giving me something different to say, which messes with type A organized people who like to have everything. But someone, I think it was someone here who said, yeah, um, if, you want to, um, if, if you want to make God laugh, just start making plans, you know, and then he'll, he'll adjust them. But I want to be sensitive to what I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking into my heart that might be specifically for those of you that chose to be with us this morning. And I want to make sure that, that I get that right. We go into every service here with a plan. We go into a plan for worship, a plan for kids' ministry, a plan for the message. But we also believe that the Holy Spirit knows things in real time that might need to adjust those plans every now and again. It's just part of our the way that we follow Jesus. So um, so your notes, you know, you, if you want to hang on to them till next week, you can. We will preach that message. This is not this message I'm going to preach this morning is not part of the series. I I, uh, I was still on the fence about it yesterday. So I prepared this one and then the one that I was going to preach this morning. And then last night, about nine or ten o'clock, I really felt like, all right, let's just go forward with this one. So no overheads, no screens. No, we don't have anything. It's just just me and your Bible today, but you know what? I believe that God has something very specific to communicate to each of us this morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. I hear murmuring already. Maybe some of you have been here this week. Um, I'm just going to talk about, I didn't even really have time to come up with a good snappy title, so I'm just going to call it the enemy's playbook. The enemy's playbook. Um, you like that? Good snappy? That works for you? Okay, the enemy's playbook. Well, it kind of came to me this way. So um, the bottom line is you and I have enemies, but we have a common one. And when you think enemies, sometimes we just think the people that are giving us a hard time and the people that we don't like or the people that just, you know, they're, in, they're driving you nuts. It's not a flesh and blood thing that we're talking about this morning because actually every single person is someone who Jesus died for and every single person is someone he wants to redeem. But we all have a common enemy. And we don't talk about him a whole lot, but I just have to be very real and transparent with you this morning. I tell you, we do have an enemy. His name is Satan, and he has an elaborate network of people who want to destroy all of us. It's just the truth. The Bible tells us that. Um, and he will constantly attack us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be attacked by the enemy. That's just a fact. You will be attacked repeatedly. Here's the deal, though. He attacks us the same way strategically and repeats those same things over and over and over, almost as though he has a playbook that tells you exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. Now, I believe it or not, I know by looking at me, you may not believe this, but I was an athlete in high school and um, and I played football and I played tennis and I played baseball. And uh, up until we up until about five years ago, I actually coached high school football and I could have been much more successful had I had access to the playbook of the other team. If I knew exactly what plays that they were going to run and when they were going to run them, my odds of success would have been so much higher. Now, there were some teams that were just that much bigger than, you know, than our team that even if we knew what they were going to run, they kept running at every play and they just dared us to stop them. They, and we did the same thing on our team. If we found that we could just run a quick dive play and get 10 yards and they couldn't stop it, we'd just run it the whole way up and down the field. I want to tell you something about the enemy. He, he has a playbook. There are specific things he does. He does them over and over and over, and he's good at them. Since the beginning of time, he's done them. But this morning, I feel like what God wants me to do through this passage is to expose us to what the playbook is so that you can prepare yourself to fight against these things when they come. Because again, you have to understand something. I know to some people, like when I, we talk about this, you get nervous. Some people would rather just believe that Satan and demons don't exist. 
because they make us uncomfortable and they make us scared, they make us nervous. You don't need to be uncomfortable and scared and nervous. The fact of the matter is that it's real. There's a dimension that you and I don't see that if God opened up your eyes to it and you could see what's going on in the spiritual realm right now, it would blow your mind. But there are angels and there are demons and they are fighting and they're fighting right now all over the earth. Says the Bible over and over and over and over again. So this morning, I don't want to give you a crash course on angels and demons and all that other kind of stuff. I just want to go very uh, specific, but very basic from Ephesians chapter six and talk a little bit about the enemy's playbook. And here's 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 the passage from the new. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. A final word. This is Paul writing to the Ephesian church. So he's writing to Christians, but we're all reading in this morning. He says a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of not some of. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. He has strategies and schemes, and they can be learned and understood by us so that we can fight back. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood. I want to say this again. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. If you're fighting against flesh and blood, you're partnering with the devil. You're helping him do what he wants to do anyway. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places therefore put on every piece of god's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the times of evil then after the battle you will be standing firm stand your ground putting on the belt of truth and the i love this in the new living translation and the body armor of god's righteousness For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be able to be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now, if there is a guy in the New Testament that understood spiritual warfare and could write about it, it was Paul. And probably a lot of other guys could understand it and did do spiritual warfare. But Paul writes a lot about it. And I realize this is a little bit out of the stream of kind of the type of the content that we talk about a lot on Sunday mornings here at Echo. You just need to know that I'm all about the ABCs. We need to talk about the XYZs sometimes, too. And this is just real. And I feel a responsibility as your pastor and as a fellow Christian to talk to you about spiritual warfare. Because if you follow Jesus, you will be attacked. You will be attacked by the enemy. You will be. He does it. His goal for all of you know what Satan's goal? His goal is to destroy you and to destroy me. That's his end game. That's it to destroy you. He hates you and he hates me. That's what he wants to do. He absolutely wants to bring you to ruin. And if he can get you to bring somebody else down and not even get the blame for it, all the better. You're going to be on one of two sides in these spiritual attacks. You're either going to be somebody who maybe innocently or even righteously or even in the name of Jesus are going to tear somebody else down. Or you're going to be on the side of the way that the spiritual forces of heaven operate. Paul writes here, there are spiritual forces of evil. That means here's a couple things you need to know about Satan. Number one, he is not omnipotent. That means he's not all powerful, but he is more powerful than you and I are in the natural But in God, we're more powerful than him. I'm not more powerful than Satan, but he who lives in me. Hello. He's much more powerful. So what that means is don't go try and tussle with things you shouldn't tussle with in the natural. If you're going to do spiritual warfare, you've got to have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. He's got to be living inside of you. And it says it says it's finding your strength in the Lord, not in you. 
I hear a lot of people who get very cavalier and say, well, I'm going to go pick a fight with the enemy today. Best not do that. I've known people that tried to pick a fight with the enemy and lost big time. I'm not stronger than he is. He's stronger than I am. But the good news is that I can be in partnership with and in surrender to the king who stands above all kings and the Lord who stands above all lords, who's infinitely more powerful than anything the enemy can do. So I don't need to walk in fear or intimidation, but I best be alert, says the Bible. I best be alert. So he's not omnipotent. Satan's not omniscient. That means he doesn't know everything in real time. So how does he get information about us? Well, he has an elaborate network of the Bible says of evil powers and rulers and authorities. A third of the angels fell originally from heaven and became part of his network of evil. So I don't know how many people or how many demons and evil powers that is, but it's a lot. And that's how his system of communication works. You can read passages in the Bible where different demonic forces interfered with things and sent communication back and forth. Satan can't be everywhere at one time. The odds of him personally being aware of what's going on with me may be slim and none unless I'm really doing something for Jesus. I don't mind being on his list. Think about it for a second. Some of you feel like I've never been attacked by the devil. I follow Jesus. I've never been attacked by the devil. Either you live in complete ignorance or you're doing nothing for God. I mean that in all love and respect. But if you want to start doing something significant for God, don't think that he's going to sit back and roll over. You think you think Satan wants Echo to succeed? You think he wants Trinity to succeed? You think he wants us to live in unity? He doesn't. He's not going to just sit back and let that stuff happen. But he's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all the time. He likes to masquerade that he is, but he's not. But he is powerful. He is devious. He does have strategies and schemes, and he uses them over and over and over again. So what I want you to realize is that if you decide to follow Jesus, you will be attacked by the devil and his forces of evil at times. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when the day of evil comes. If I could summarize all all of Paul's instructions to the Ephesians in chapter 6, it would be this. The devil is always launching attacks. These attacks are unavoidable, so be prepared. We don't need to walk around in fear. When you're prepared, it's like bring on the attack because I got something for you. I remember I, I don't do it anymore. I used to play paintball a lot and we would set up these little ambushes. I'm not the, the fastest of, of foot, but I would, you know, a couple of my buddies and I, we'd just kind of lay very still in the bottom of a pit and wait till everybody got close to us and we'd light them all up. I wasn't afraid of the attack. I had something waiting for them when they got there. If you live in such a way that you're alert and you're prepared for the enemy when he attacks... You just go right into your protocol and you handle your business the way that you need to with Jesus on your side and you march forward. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be intimidated. You need to be informed. You need to be alert. You need to be aware. I believe in this room this morning there are a lot of you that are under an attack of the enemy. You, some of you know you're being attacked by the enemy. Some of you just see circumstances and you can't pinpoint it. And I'm helping you understand there might be a spiritual dimension to this. Because the other thing the enemy likes to get us to do is to fight our spiritual battles naturally. Those weapons don't work there. You know, it's like the old joke. It's like taking a, you know, a sword to a gunfight. You know, you take the wrong weapon to the wrong arena. I don't care how good your weapon is in the right arena. It's not going to help you at all there. Some of you are in a spiritual battle and you're treating it naturally. Some of you are under enormous opposition in your jobs right now. Your finances are under unexplained attack. Your families are being pulled apart. Relationships that used to be solid in your life are shifting under your feet. Some of you that have wrestled with clinical depression years ago, you're battling it again and you don't know why. Some of you are getting caught up in conversations that are making you question everything about you, about God, about yourself. Those are all fingerprint. That's not how God operates. Don't think that it's God doing this. 
Those are fingerprints of how the enemy attacks us. And what you do in those times, and the goal is, I love it, the goal is not to defeat the enemy. He's already defeated. My job is not to go beat the devil. He's beaten already. My job is to stand and not fall myself. You're watching, in some strange way, it's almost like, you know, I, I've DVR'd sporting events before when I missed them, and I'd go home and watch them later. You know, and it's like watching the game where your team is down 28 nothing, but it's tape recorded. The end result is already decided. And if you just throw the remote at the TV and walk away, you might miss out on the incredible comeback story. Friend, you might be at a part in the story of your life where you feel like you're losing. But God knows how the end score works out. And you need to stay on the program and not give up where you're at right here. Because so many people click off and walk away and they never get to see what God does. There will be times you feel like you lose. That's why Paul called it is a struggle. And in a struggle, sometimes you're winning and sometimes you're losing. But the end result is that if you stay the course, you will win. Well, how do I get there? Well, let's break it down verse by verse. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The devil is smarter and stronger than I am in the natural. Now, some of people get offended by that. Well, no, God's strong. God is, I'm not, I'm not God. The devil is stronger and smarter than Phil is in my natural self. But something changed when I began a personal relationship with Jesus. When I repented of my sins and said, I choose heaven over hell. I choose God over Satan. I choose him over me. I received the spirit of God into my life. And now the Bible says he who lives and resides inside of me is greater than he who's in the world. He's more powerful. And now I have access to that. So that's why this verse says, be strong in the Lord, not be strong in yourself, not be strong in your doctrine, not strong in your faith, not strong in your ministry. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. My strength can't be rooted in me if I'm going to win. It has to be rooted in Christ. Verse 11 says this, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Partial armor is not sufficient for protection from the enemy. The enemy will always attack where you're unprotected. And later we'll talk about the armor. But what he says is put on all the armor, not just some of it. Because some people say, well, I'm saved. I've got my helmet of salvation. That's good. Now, I might still be living in sin. I might be speaking lies and spreading deceit and rumors. But as long as I've got my helmet of salvation, uh-uh, pick all the armor. Because he, he might not attack you at your salvation. He might attack you with your mouth. Get you to start spreading things. Sometimes in the name of Jesus. Feeling like you're doing the righteous thing. And really, you're just becoming a pawn, an expendable pawn to the enemy to try and tear you down and somebody else down. Armor isn't offensive, is it? It's defensive. It's even protective. It's interesting. You don't generally put on your armor to go use them as weapons. You put on armor to protect yourself. So what does that tell you about the whole context about what Paul's talking about? In a spiritual battle, it's not just about picking up your sword and charging hell. You better take care of your own self first. And protect your heart, protect your mouth, protect your feet. Because you'll read later on the weapon you have is your prayers. So if he can render your prayer ineffective, you carry a gun around with no bullets and you shoot in the air thinking you're going to take somebody out. If he can interrupt your prayers, then you're defenseless. How do we interrupt our prayers? Get us in unrighteousness, get us to doubt our faith, get us to not walk in peace. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to protect yourself first. That's why he says put on the armor. And I love that he says, put it on. It means it doesn't come on automatically. It means you must intentionally, every day, make sure that you have put on the armor of God so that you can withstand. You don't know when the attacks are going to come. Let me rephrase that. The longer you walk with God, you'll start sensing when they come. Personal experience. The longer you walk with God, you start smelling an attack before it even comes. 
I was going to tell this later. I'll tell this right now. So when I got, so when I was in Haiti, God spoke to me very specifically, gave me a word in my life. It was about four sentences. He doesn't always talk to me that bold faced and underlined, but he did. It was very, very, very specific. And the last part of what he talked about was the price that I would have to be willing to pay in order to pursue this, this thing that he put in my heart. And in that moment, I said, God, whatever the price, I'll pay it. And as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I said it out loud. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I kind of shuddered. And I thought, whoa, I don't know that I thought that really through. And the next thing, the very next thing I did was start to intercede for my wife and my son. And I said this. I said, God, if there's a price to pay, let it fall on me and me alone. Not on my wife, not on my son, not on my church, not on my leaders. Let it fall on me. It's probably a really stupid thing to say. But it's just kind of what came out in that moment. And again, I, I, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes you have prayers like this where you just pray and you mean it in the moment, but then you think about it later. Like, I don't know if I really thought through what exactly I was saying when I said that. So uh, I got home from Haiti on a Saturday night and uh, or Sunday morning. And uh, beginning that Sunday and up through until Friday of this past week, every night I had a sa- the same dream. It was a nightmare. And it was my wife and my son being killed in a car accident. And I'm not one that God speaks to in dreams regularly. I forget most of my dreams. And if I have a dream, it's usually because I ate pizza way too late in the evening. So I'm not one who puts a lot of stock in my own. But I also feel like when God's really trying to communicate to us, he'll keep sending the same message until we get it as long as we'll try to hear it. Kind of like the story of Samuel. He got it wrong a bunch of times, but God kept calling to him until he investigated and finally got it right. So I did not share this with my wife. I didn't share it with anybody, but I knew in my heart the enemy's going to make an attack on my wife and my son. I knew it. I just knew it. And every night, I, I would wake up so groggy in the morning, I couldn't tell my wife why, but because as soon as I'd had that dream, I couldn't go back to sleep. I would sit up and I would intercede. I would pray in the spirit. I would pray every which way I knew how. God, please, even though the weapon has been formed, don't let it prosper. Even though there's a weapon being formed, because that's what the Bible says, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Don't think that that means the weapon won't be formed. It will still be formed. But all I knew to do was pray. I couldn't just tell him not to drive. I didn't want to live in fear. But I'm telling you, it just settled into my heart there's a weapon being formed. The enemy's going to try and take my wife and my son out through a car accident. That's not stuff you're going around telling people. It's just stuff that you... Yesterday at the Turkey Bowl, we drove two separate cars to the event. My wife and my son came, and, and I came along with them at the same time, but we knew with my son he needs a nap in the afternoon, and so I want to let him go home. And she came over to me. She's like, I'm gonna, she's like Chase and I are going to go home now. He's getting kind of tired. And I kissed her, and I told her that I loved her. My son looked up, to me, up at me, and he said, bye-bye, Daddy. And like, he hugged me, and I kissed him, and I just felt like, it's going to happen today. And I kissed him again. I said, I love you, buddy. They got in the car, and I kind of then pushed it back out of my mind. About 25 minutes later, one of the leaders comes over and grabs my arm and says, you, your wife was just in a car accident. I said, man, I didn't want to be right about that. She said, what? I said, never mind. I get on the phone. I call my wife. And I said, babe, what happened? She told me, and uh, she's shaken up. And um, she said, but it could have been so much worse. She's like, she was sitting still at a traffic light on Falls Road, and a teenager was texting and driving her Jeep off-road vehicle. But for some reason, Kendra said, I was watching the rearview mirror. I saw her look up, put her hands on her head, and then she did start to brake, and it slowed enough of the momentum of the car down that when it hit the back of, the, of, our, of our car, it didn't do any more than just some, I mean, it did some structural damage. So much so that, of course, I leave and I fly, you know, I'm going over there trying to get to where they're at. And I'm like, how is Chase? She's like, well, when, as soon as I put him in the car to leave the turkey bowl, he fell asleep. He slept through the accident. He's sleeping right now. He didn't wake up till he got home. <laughs> so I got to tell you something. 
This junk is real. The weapon was formed. It did not prosper. It did not prosper. It didn't prosper. And last night I didn't have that dream for the first time since I've been home from Haiti. Now, why do I tell you that? Lots of reasons. I want you to understand this is not just cartoonish stuff that we're making up. When you walk with Jesus close enough, he'll start telling you things. He'll start showing you things. And even if you're not 100% certain, you prepare yourself anyway. There was almost a sense of relief when I saw her and that was the accident. I, I, I was like, okay, I get it now. You know, I understand more about the way that these forces are at work. Friend, it's not just me. There's stuff like this that goes on all the time in your life. In the lives of people that we care about. And we don't have to sit back on the defense. We protect ourselves. But we do fight. We fight with spiritual weapons. The Bible says in this verse, it says, um, so that you can stand against the strategies of the devil. The devil has certain strategies that have always worked for him. If you look from Genesis to straight through to Revelation, I can't give you all of them this morning. But let me just suggest a few typical schemes and strategies of the enemy that he uses. Um, in no particular order. One is temptation. Offering something that you can have, that you want to have, that, you offer pl- that will offer you temporary pleasure, that even feels right to you. How did he try and get Jesus? Temptation. How did he derail David? Temptation. How did he derail Eve? Temptation. But at least with Eve and with David, they put themselves in a right position to be tempted. They went someplace they shouldn't have gone. They were pushing the envelope as close to the edge as they could get it, and they put themselves in an environment that was ripe with temptation. Here's all I would say to you about this. If you want to walk close to Jesus, then walk close to him and don't see how far you can push the envelope the other direction. For me, it's not about just being saved. It's about how close can I be to Jesus and not walk as close to the edge as I possibly can. I remember when I grew up in youth group, they had these, um, the, the, the hot topic every week, or at least in 14 and 15. I quit going to church when I was 16. But like 14 and 15, every, I felt like every time I went to youth service, there was a conversation about how far is too far, talking about dating. And they had all kinds of incredibly awkward illustrations about that. Um, it was more educational for me than it was anything else. I was like, really? I didn't even know about that, but thank you for telling me. You know? Um, and I never really got to an answer for that question. And then at one point, when, when I became a youth pastor later on, and I was getting ready to have, you know, every, please don't think less of me. This is how far I've grown. Every, every February, we had what we called LSD month, love, sex, and dating. And it worked for two years, but I developed, the wrong crowd was coming to our services, and I couldn't figure out why. It's like it was a terrible marketing idea. And I thought, all right, well, what do I need? We probably need to talk about how far is too far. And I had a conversation. With, well, it wasn't a conversation. It was a monologue from God. He said, that's the wrong question. It's not about how, how much can I get away with and not sin. It's about how close can I walk to Jesus. And there's this whole school of thought that says, how close to sin can we as Christians get? How close to this guardrail can I get? Friend, if you want to walk close to Jesus, don't set yourself up for an attack. If you don't want to fall off the building, stay away from the ledge, man. You know, if you don't want, the, you don't want to make yourself weak to temptation then stay away from the thing. And you have to know personally how you're wired. Some things that might be a strong area in my life are weak for you and vice versa. There's some things that don't tempt me whatsoever that might be the thing that gets you. You got to know you because the enemy does. He's not going to hit you where you're strong. He's not going to hit you in the area. If your doctrine is solid, he's not going to hit you in doctrine. But if you don't think too highly of yourself, that's where he'll get you. He's smart. You got to be just as smart. 
You've got to know you because he does. Another thing he does besides, he, the other, another one of his things is offense. He loves to get us offended. Offense, you do the word study on that, it means it actually is closest to the word bait. He tries to bait us. Yeah, that's a great book. I've read it like 47 times. You know, it's a great book. Um, the Bait of Satan by John Bevere go, goes into that. There's another one out that someone was telling me about too that they do the same word study. But he loves to operate in the arena of offense. If he can get you offended, and offense happens one of two ways. It's either because you have legitimately been tr- treated unfairly and you're offended. Or you think you've been treated unfairly and you got bad information. You made an assumption and you're running with it. Offended people are hurt people and hurt people hurt people. Look at how many people fell simply because they took an offense. And it's usually not they're not offended with God or Satan. They're offended with another human being. Guys, it happens. That's why forgiveness is so important. Forgiveness is how you release people's offenses against you because people are going to do you wrong. And it's also possible that sometimes people, you think they've done you wrong when they haven't, but you think that they have, and you hold it like it's an offense. If he can get you offended, if he can get you offended, what happens is, especially if he can get a believer offended, because watch what happens. As Christians, we get, we get offended. We think that person is an instrument of the devil, and we start attacking them and building our own coalition against them, and we do the enemy's work in the name of Jesus. You've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. I've probably been on both sides of that equation in my life. But it's a strategy of the enemy. If you're walking around feeling terribly, terribly, terribly offended, it doesn't mean that you're being possessed by a demon. It doesn't mean, it just means you're in a vulnerable state that could keep you from being able to fight for God and get as close to him as you want to. Another thing he does is isolation. He makes you think you're all by yourself. Why isn't anybody else struggling like I am? He makes you feel like it's everybody against you when it might just be one or two really loud voices in your ear. He has a way of amplifying one or two voices to make you feel like it's everybody. Guilty of that feeling myself. You you can walk through a season where you just got somebody at work, somebody in your family, somebody in your church that's really complaining and giving you a hard time. And the enemy likes you to feel isolated and feel like that person is the spokesperson of all the population of the earth. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But buddy, if he can get you alone... You know when he tried to get Jesus? He was all by himself. If he can isolate you, then your mind becomes very fertile for him to do things. That's why this is so important. Pastor, if I can't come to church every Sunday, am I going to hell? No, but you know what? I want you to be here as often as you can because this means you're not isolated. This means you're together with other people who walk life and live life with you, with you. And you can worship. You can come together corporately. That's why we have small groups and things like that to give you connect points during the week. I don't want you to live in isolation. Every Thursday and Friday of every week, I try and track down people I haven't seen at Echo for two or three weeks because I don't want them to live in isolation. If they moved on to another church, if they're mad at me, if I don't dress nice or not casual enough or the coffee, whatever, whatever the issues are, man, okay, that's all right. But I want to make sure that they don't live in isolation because the enemy loves to do that. Get people in isolation. It's one of his strategies. Division is another one of his strategies. He loves to cut apart vision. Kingdom divided against itself can't stand. All it takes is one person to divide the house. He loves to divide families, to divide workplaces, to divide churches. He's good at it. He's really, really, really good at it. But you just need to be aware of how he does. The other one is he gets you to question God. You remember what he asked Eve? 
He started off this question, and I bet you've asked it before. Did God really say? Did God really say that? You'll have a God moment and you'll say, I know I need to make this change in my life. I need to start something, stop something, change something. And in that moment, you'll feel like this is the right decision. I will promise you within a few hours, if not a few days, something will come up. The enemy will try and make you question that. And you'll say, this must have been the wrong decision. I must have missed God. Did God really say that to me? Every job that I've ever taken in ministry, there's been times I'm like, did I miss God seven months ago, eight months ago, nine months ago, two years ago? Because now I'm experiencing some bumpiness. You know, and those are times you just need to buck up and remember what God told you and just say, no, I'm going to silence that lie in the name of Jesus, send it back to the pit of hell where it came from. And I'm going to press on. Or you can just sit there and debate and eat the apple and get stuck all over again. He loves to make you ask, did God really do that? Was that really God that you heard? Did you really put yourself out on that limb? Those are specific strategies that he used. Those aren't all of them. The Bible is filled with them. But he loves to tempt us, offend us, isolate us, divide us and make us question things. But the appropriate response of the devil's strategies to the devil's strategies is to stand, not to flee. You stand. And I love that word. And if you get nothing else from me this morning, understand what Paul's trying to do is help you stand because God's. God knows the battle is won. He just doesn't want you to fall. Stand. Verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. You know, there's red letters in some of your Bibles where Jesus spoke. And there's some things I just wish were golden highlights. This I've had to speak into my life so many times in my own life. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we do, don't we? Because here's, let me just be as real as I know to be with this. And this is what God speaks into my life at times. The person or persons that may very well be your flesh and blood enemies. Don't say they're not enemies. It says we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Because the Bible talks about enemies. And the Bible says very specifically, what are we supposed to do? Attack them, call them names, build, co- uh-uh. <laughs> Love them. Bless them. Pray for them. Yuck. <laughs> right? Well, the first thing that happens is your heart changes hard to stay angry at somebody that you pray over every day now some people are enemies not by your choice but by theirs god's not saying you have to just treat them welcome them into your home and make them part of your family that's not what he's saying he's saying guard your heart and they'll have to answer for theirs you have to answer for yours he said we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies so when i start fighting against flesh and blood enemies i'm partnering <laughs> I'm partnering with Satan to destroy them. When we fight against flesh and blood enemies, we partner with the devil. Because that's his goal. But when we do everything that we can to keep our heart clean, to cover them in prayer. Sometimes it means to confront. Sometimes it means Bible also talks, sometimes with your enemies, you know what? You don't you can't keep company with them. You just can't. The Bible says there are occasions where people have done you so wrong and they are unrepentant that you have to sever relationship, says the Bible. But the purpose is so that somehow that severing of the relationship may be finally the linchpin that gets them to think I've done something wrong here. That doesn't mean you can't still pray over them and protect your own heart. This means you don't have to perpetuate the fight on your end. I have to balance that out because sometimes people hear that and say, hey, does that mean I'm just supposed to be a doormat and call wrong right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But when we start turning that into a fight of people against people, everybody loses. 
And the enemy, watch what happens. He got a little offense in there. He doesn't even have to do the fight anymore. He's like, well, those guys will take care of it. I'll move on to something else. And they might even blame God for it. He's good at what he does, and he does it all the time. Be alert. Be prepared. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Fighting spiritually is a struggle. Sometimes we're winning. Sometimes we feel like we're losing. But ultimately, we can win. Winning is not equal to me defeating the enemy. He's already defeated. Winning in a spiritual struggle is me not falling while under attack from the enemy. Because I'll tell you, the easiest thing to do when the enemy starts to attack you is to fall. You let sin creep in. You let lies creep in. You exchange peace for fighting. Your faith falls apart and you're convinced that you're not saved and you don't know God and he doesn't love you. Some people even get so under duress by the enemy, they walk completely away from God and decide they don't even want to live a Christian life anymore. And each of those five possible responses tie directly to one of the pieces of armor we're supposed to put on to protect us in that. Winning against the enemy doesn't mean that you beat him the whole way back to hell. and that, That's already done. It's already done, friend. Winning means you stand and you don't fall and you don't crumble even when under attack. Paul doesn't want us to concentrate our efforts on fighting people, but on the spirits that influence and move the people. I've prayed in my life when I feel like I'm under attack by people. What I start to do is God reveal, to reveal their and expose their true motives for what they are in a way that that person comes to repentance and spare their soul from eternal hell. Spare their soul from the damage that they're doing. God revealed the spirits and operation underneath it that they might not even see. The enemy's troops are organized and they follow a hierarchy of power. Verse 13, therefore put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in times of evil. Then after battle, you'll be standing firm. Here's what it says. Put on, it says you'll be able to resist the enemy in times of evil. That means times of evil will come. It's not a matter of if, but when. We don't need to be afraid of it. We need to be prepared for it. We must put on every single piece of God's armor. This indicates three things. Number one, our armor is not automatically on. We have to arm ourselves. And listen, I'm not the person who says you have to read your Bible and pray at this point of the day or that point of the day. But I will tell you something. You best be aware that as soon as you open your eyes and even while you're sleeping, the enemy was at work. So don't wait too long in your day to put your armor on. Whatever that looks like for you. And I know there's people, I mean, there's people, I'm not calling anybody by my name. I know there's people here that get up every morning, six o'clock as a family, as a couple, and they sit down and they read their Bible and their devotion together. That's awesome. They're putting their armor on. Now, if you care about protecting yourself, you'll find a way to do it. I've told you before in this church, I don't want you to read your Bible. I want you to want to read your Bible. I don't want you to pray. I want you to want to pray. I don't want you to do it just because I tell you to do it. You know, and at times it's going to feel like a discipline. It's going to feel like I don't want to do this. I, my body doesn't feel like doing it. But you best do it anyway. That's part of you have a flesh that didn't come out of the womb wired to want to sit in God's presence for a long period of time. Walking with God is pleasurable. Your spirit loves it. Your flesh hates it. Your flesh doesn't want to read your Bible every day. Your flesh doesn't want to sit in God's presence. Your flesh doesn't want to get up on a Sunday morning when you could sleep in and come into the house of God and worship. Your flesh doesn't want to write a tithe check and give an offering and give money to missions. and wants to give it to Starbucks and Best Buy and every place else. Let's not kid ourselves. But I will tell you this. You walk with God long enough, it won't feel like discipline. It'll feel like a habit. Because you'll find like, I don't detest this. I love this. I can't wait to do this. You couldn't stop me from doing it. Now it's no longer a discipline. 
Now it's a part of who I am. But sometimes you've got to start there. But if you want to get beat up by the enemy, don't read your Bible, don't put on your armor, but to stop calling and complaining. You've got to buck up at some point and take some ownership for this. I get weary of people who want me to be more invested in their spiritual battles than they are. Really wish I wouldn't have said that now that I said that. What's in my notes? <laughs> um, but let me balance that. There is a thing called intercession. And that means at times God puts burdens on your heart for somebody else that's not fighting spiritually like they can or they know that they should. Or maybe they aren't even aware of and you carry it for somebody else. But, but the bottom line is this. You can't lean on everybody else to fight your spiritual battles for you. And it's a futile, and you've been in those situations before where it was spiritually in the natural where people came to you with a problem that they wanted you to fix and be more concerned about it than they were. And that's incredibly frustrating. And all you're doing is enabling people when you keep doing all the, I mean, those of you with children understand at some point they've got to start figuring some stuff out for themselves. My son's two. He hasn't figured out the lawnmower yet, but as soon as he can figure it out, right? I do get weary, and I'm sure you get weary sometimes of people who, you know, all they want to do is mope about their problems. They don't want to do anything to fix it. They want you to fix it. Spiritual battles, you've got to fight them. You've got to fight your spiritual battles for yourself. But the beautiful thing is that collectively, collectively when we come together, we can do some damage. Collectively. The Bible talks about bearing each other's burdens. That means I might not be under attack right now, but you might be, so I'm here. I'll be your armor bearer. I'll help you through it. I'll stand with you shoulder to shoulder. doesn't mean I'm not compassionate, that I don't have mercy, that I don't have grace. But there are times when I have to look people in the eye and say, you know, you need to step up and do something here too. You need to be invested in this. You want to win this battle. If it's a battle worth fighting, it's a battle worth putting on your armor and you get in there and you do some slugging away yourself. There will be times when we have done it all and the battle's still going on. So just keep standing. Don't fall. I love it in, in the NIV. It says, and when you have done all, stand. Donnie McClurkin has a song about it. I was listening to it the other day. It talks about just standing. What, what can you do when you've done all you can? Just stand. And sometimes the best thing you can do is not fall. Those are helpless times, but friend, they are sweet times. You will be in those moments. The proximity to Jesus that you feel in those moments, it almost makes the battle worth it just to have, worth it just to have the privilege of the intimacy of his presence. So real quick, the armor. I can't go through these in great detail. Some of you, you're very familiar with the armor of God. For others, what are the things I'm supposed to arm myself with? There's a couple things. The belt of truth he talks about. The belt is not an offensive. Well, in my house growing up, the belt was an offensive <laughs> weapon. <laughs> I remember the day when I finally outgrew the wooden spoon and they switched to the belt. That was bad. The truth is an essential part of our defense against the enemy because he doesn't operate in truth. And the first thing he'll get you to do when you're under attack is to compromise what is true. And he might not come to you with an out-and-out lie. He'll just change the truth by one click to the left or one click to the right. So when you feel like you're under attack or to stay away from attacks or to, sub or to stop them before they start, you be passionate about the truth. Don't take what he said that she said that they said that got to you if it's that big of a deal, find out the truth. If you have a question about something that happens in your home, happens in your church, happens in your business, and it's really settling in your heart, don't settle for the opinion. Go get the truth. And don't let it come out of your mouth unless it's true. If you're not sure, or if it shouldn't be repeated, then don't. 
You put that belt of truth on. Because the enemy loves for you to feel like you're right. And not everything that's right is true. Oh, it might be right, but it might not be true. It's very, very, very important because the thing is, if you can start speaking things that are untrue out of your mouth, you have immediately compromised the effectiveness of your prayers. Because some of us get so wrapped up over praying over something because we think a thing is the way that it is and it's not, and we're deceived. And we pray God to resolve an outcome that's not even a true thing, and your prayers go nowhere but convince you that God doesn't hear them. Truth. The belt of truth. If you're going to win your fight against the enemy and you're going to stand, you've got to have the belt of truth on. Second place in, in, in the New Living Translation is the body armor of righteousness. I love that phrase. NIV says the breastplate of righteousness. It's not an offensive weapon. You're not, weapon, you're not going to take off your, your, your body armor and hit people over the head with it. But it protect, you know what it does? It protects your heart and your vital organs. That's what a breastplate did back in Paul's day. So what's he saying? He says, if you're under an attack from the enemy, you better protect your heart because he's going to go there. How do I protect it? Righteousness. What that means is when you're under attack from the enemy, you better beware that you're going to want to sin. Probably you're going to be more apt to sin than you would than when you're feeling strong. Because your defenses are down, your body is weak, you're tired, you're a little confused, you're a little frustrated. And those are all triggers, things that lower our defenses that make it easier for us to sin. But you cannot become part of the sickness when you're under an attack because then you become infected and you switch sides. Not that you walk out of relationship with God, but when we're living in sin, we're operating out of sinful thoughts and sinful feelings, emotions, vengeance, getting even, getting right, proving points, defending ourselves. Those are all tools of offense that the enemy likes to get in there. We protect our heart in times of attack with righteousness. You know why it's so important for you multiple times a day? Say, God, examine my heart. Don't let sin, don't let the sun set today with sin still in my heart. I don't ask God to examine my heart one time a day regularly, in real time. I'm asking God all the time, God, protect my heart. I hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because if you live righteously, all the other things can be added. But if you don't live righteously, there's no point in adding anything else to me and making me think I'm okay. We best deal with my heart first. The enemy, when he attacks you, he's going to try and lure you into sinful patterns and habits and behaviors. That's why we have to protect ourselves with the body armor of righteousness so that we can stand. We have to guard our heart that way so that we're not infected. Then he says, put on the shoes, of the, or the shoes that are, are, are shod in the, in the King James Version with the gospel of peace. Talks about making your shoes peace. That everywhere you walk, you leave a footprint of peace, not turmoil, not chaos, not those conversations that you get done with and you walk away and you'd be like, I wish I wouldn't have just had that conversation. That was just yucky. He says, because, you know, the enemy doesn't operate in peace. He operates in turmoil and chaos. If you take every occasion the enemy attacks you as an instance for you to be less understanding of your spouse, short with your kids, nasty to your coworkers, Mean to the barista at Starbucks. Please be nice to them because I've come in after some people made them mad and it's not good. (laughs) Blessed are the peacemakers. How do you protect yourself from getting sucked under an attack? You keep walking and living in peace as best you can. That means even when you have to confront an attack, sometimes you have to confront. Sometimes you sit down eyeball to eyeball with people. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to find a way to get to peace. 
That doesn't mean you have to say you're wrong. But the whole purpose of discipline in the Bible is redemptive. That means when I sit down with somebody, if I have an issue with them, our goal is to find a peaceful solution. And sometimes it means, hey, as a result of this conversation, I recognize I am completely, totally in the wrong here and I need to ask your forgiveness. And then they have an opportunity to accept forgiveness. And then you can make nice and say, we don't ever have to talk about this again. We found peace. And that little skirmish of the enemy is over and done. And you move on. But sometimes when the enemy attacks, he gets us in battle mode with people. So he says, let your feet bring peace everywhere they go. He talks about the shield of faith, which I've heard all kinds of studies on it. They used to dip them back in Paul's day. They'd coat them with animal skins. These shields were like huge. They could almost cover your whole body. If you put the shield up, you could put your whole body behind it. And if you got like eight or ten people side by side, you could overlap your shields and it'd be like this big kind of unstoppable you know, plank moving across the field and they'd cover them with animal skins and they'd dip them in water so that when the, the people on the other side would shoot arrows that were flaming, they'd hit the shield and they wouldn't burn the shield, they'd be immediately extinguished. The idea is that you and I are supposed to be completely covered with a shield of what we believe, faith is what I believe to be true about God. The more that I get to know about God, the stronger my shield is. The more that I internalize that truth, the stronger my shield is. And individually, it's fantastic. And that, because the enemy will always shoot fiery arrows about what you believe about God. And when you're going under attack, he'll convince you that it's your fault, that's the sins of your past, that's because you did something, you slipped on a banana peel five years ago and God's punishing you. We laugh. But man, it's real stuff. Because a lot of times in the attack, you think it's God doing it. Well, the reason the washing went down and the car is not working and it must be something I did wrong with God. And sometimes the judgment of God and the attacks of the enemy feel the same, but you have to look at the scheme and the strategy. There's strategies the enemy uses that God doesn't use. You have to see where it's coming from. God operates in things like feeling a sense of conviction and an awareness of our sin and a distancing from his presence. The enemy operates a whole different category. God doesn't use chaos and confusion as teaching mechanisms says Paul in 1 Corinthians. God's a God of order. Not a God of chaos. Not a God of confusion. But the shield of faith not only benefits me individually. You know, the soldiers back in Paul's day, they understood that a whole bunch of shields linked together make an unstoppable force. Sometimes your faith strengthens me. I was having, uh, I met somebody for prayer, or, or one of our couples for prayer uh, late on Friday night. And I walked away and I looked at them. They said, thank you so much, Pastor, for coming over and praying. I said, really? I said, I felt like I should have taken notes by everything that you said. Your faith tonight and the things that you were speaking about your life and what God's showing you, that strengthened me. And isn't that the way that this whole Christianity church thing is supposed to work? We strengthen each other in the Lord. We build each other up in the Lord. We're not here to critique and criticize and tear everybody apart. You can go anywhere else in the world and have that. Why don't you come here and find people that can build you up and you can build them up? Because maybe this week I need it, but maybe next week you need it. That's the idea of the collective thing behind the shield of faith. Don't let the enemy in a time of attack make you think things about God that aren't true and doubt your faith. Then he says, put on the helmet of salvation, which isn't an offensive weapon. It protects our head, protects our mind. Salvation guards our mind against believing the attack is from God rather than the enemy. Our salvation reminds us that Christ has already defeated the enemy. I'd love that he says, make sure you have your helmet of salvation on because sometimes in attack you'll convince yourself you're not even saved. Or you'll start convincing yourself, this must be God attacking me. God doesn't attack his followers. God doesn't attack his kids. He's not an abusive father. But the enemy is just good enough at deceiving us. And once he deceives us a little bit, you start buying into all kinds of other stuff. Have to understand where it comes from, where it doesn't. Then he says, take up the sword of spirit. Here's the offensive weapon that we got. The only weapon of offense, he says, is the sword of the spirit. 
The Holy Spirit was involved in creating man. The Holy Spirit doesn't destroy men. The sword God gives us isn't to go around and attack your enemies. It's to attack your enemy. Or I should point that. I don't know where he is up there on the side. I don't know where he's located. But it's not to attack people. It's to attack the enemy. The Spirit, only, the Spirit of God only responds to the Word of God. We learned that in Genesis chapter 1. The greatest misinterpretation I see of these two verses is when they treat 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18 as two separate thoughts. where They kind of like, like want to say, you know, um, pick up the sword of the Spirit, separate thought, and pray in the Spirit. Actually, in the original language, it says, pick up the sword of the Spirit and pray, is what it says. And say, pick up the sword and go, you know, swashbuckle a little while, and then later on pray. It says, pick up the sword of the Spirit and pray. In other words, prayer is your offensive weapon. Talking to God. As plainly and as simply as you have to. I've heard people pray and they are masterful prayers. You could publish them in books and some of them have. And then I hear other prayers as simple as God help. And he answers those too. You pick up the sword of the spirit and you pray in the spirit on all occasions. That's how we fight this back. Because, you know, I was thinking like, in practical terms, you know, this, these dreams I was having about my wife and my son being in a car accident, like, okay, God, what do I do with this? Do I tell them they can't drive the car anywhere? Do I tell, I mean, I didn't see myself in that dream. So I was like, it's going to happen in a time that I'm not in the car. So do I just need to never tell them to drive? Do I, what do I need to do? I, pray. It's the only thing I could come up with. Should I tell them? He said, no. I said, okay. I did tell Kendra yesterday after the accident. She said, I'm so glad you didn't tell me that before. I said, I'm, I'm telling you now. I said, because I don't know exactly what hornet's nest I stirred up. But I know that there's an attack going on right now. And I refuse to live my life in fear of the enemy. I refuse to say, all right, let that. Because the other thing that God said to me, and again, this is just my interpretation of what God said. This is not written in the Bible. When, when I was in Haiti, God spoke to me. And he said, this is, this is something I want you to He said two things. One was, you know, kind of an ongoing work they want to do several times a year to help in Haiti the other one was about he said do you remember what you told me a bunch of years ago that you, your life's goal was I said yes to build a church based on the power and the presence of God and that's it power and the presence of God he said that's still very much in front of you he said but I'll let that burden pass from me if you don't want it I said no that's what I want he said okay but there's a price to pay okay well then whatever the price and, oh why did I say that I'm just not going to live my life in such a way where I'm going to stay away from the destiny of God because of the attack of the enemy. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to live in intimidation. And you don't have to either. I'm not some huge hero of the faith. I am a human being like you are. I have weaknesses and issues like you do. I have sensitivities and inadequacies just like you do. But I'm not going to let my life be defined by that. I'm not going to let the enemy write that story. I'm not going to let that be the bio written underneath my name. I'm not willing to do that. And I say that hopefully to encourage and inspire you that you don't have to settle for that either. You have dreams for your family. You have dreams for your job. You have dreams for your ministry. You've got dreams for books you haven't written yet. You've got dreams for things and places you want to go and do for Jesus. You have dreams for what you want to do with your finances. And the enemy hates all of it. And he will attack it. But there's nobody in the Bible who got where they were going without any resistance. When it comes to the kingdom of God and the things that value him, it is not the path of least resistance. It's the path of usually most resistance. And I often feel like I know I'm on the right track when I see a lot of resistance. 
And that's the path I need to be on, even if it's not always the path I want to be on. If I'm on the path of least resistance for God, it means I'm not doing any damage to hell. And then what am I really doing? I do want this campus more than anything else to be a place where people can experience the power and the presence of God more than anything else. Not that anything else is unimportant. There's a lot of other things that are extremely important. I've had visions when I prayed over this of people who come in here blind and during worship, their eyes open and they can see. I've had visions of people uh, coming in with all kinds of maladies and infirmities. And even before having someone lay hands on them, they're just healed because they come into the power and the presence of God. It would not take God long to draw attention to himself for something like that. But there's a price to pay for that type of thing because the enemy hates that. The enemy's not intimidated by logos and websites and images and Facebook pages. We have all that and it's great. They're good tools for us. Those things don't worry him. You start talking about we want to have a place where we believe the power and presence of God comes every week to to change lives and transform people and see miracles and signs and wonders. He hates that and he'll fight that tooth and nail. He doesn't want that. You know, I've just prayed God let people who have dealt with clinical depression for years come in here and have their supernatural supernatural that their chemicals regulate. They don't need their meds anymore and they're good to go. Let people who come in here with physical symptoms related to sexual assault earlier on in their life that he heals just like that. Just like that. Is that what I want? No, that's just what I feel like God shows me when I pray about what God would want to do. And the moment that I even start verbalizing, the moment we start talking about making a series about the main thing, I just kind of smell it. Okay, the enemy's going to step up his game. Okay, so here we are. So what do we do? We can pretend like it doesn't exist. Or we can stand. We can put on our armor and we can pray. So enough about Echo, enough about me. What about you? What battles are you in right now? What things are going on in your life that maybe up to this point you didn't even recognize was a spiritual attack against you, your family, your faith, your righteousness, your peace, the truth in your life? Friend, don't voluntarily be a victim to that anymore. I want to take it one level deeper. Have you inadvertently and maybe very much unintentionally started partnering with the enemy to help fight a flesh on flesh thing that God's trying to bring some insight for you this morning for you to stop. Has he infected you to a point where there are now wedges between you and people you care about and that you and that you maybe even previously had good relationship with that maybe on your side there's unresolved business and I realize opening that up I've got people in my family, in my life, that relationships aren't good there, and I've examined my heart even before preaching this. And sometimes, you know, I can honestly say, you know, yeah, there are distances in relationship, but my heart's clean in it. But there's just still a distance there. Oh, I, I can just get. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about maybe where you're still perpetuating the offense on your end, and there's unresolved in your own heart. But you just need to let go of some of those things this morning and purify your own heart. I want you to be able to stand. And I do not want anybody in this room to feel like you are alone and isolated because you're the only one going through a spiritual attack. If we were completely honest, I ask people to raise hands right now, knowing what you know about spiritual attacks. How many of you think or know for sure that you are you, your family, your finances, your job, your vision, your health is somewhere under attack by the enemy? You'd be amazed by how many hands would go up. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. But it starts with a relationship with Jesus. It starts with a relationship with Jesus. Have to have a personal relationship with him. I don't care whether Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Anticostal, whatever. 
doesn't matter. That's not what we're talking about. You don't have to join a denomination. You don't have to sign up a membership card. You don't have to know a certain amount. of. Here's what you have to believe in your heart to be true, though. You have to believe God exists. You have to believe he has a son named Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, is alive today, and that Jesus paid the price for your sin and mine. You have to recognize you need a savior. And until you've come to the terrifying conclusion that you need a savior, you'll never cling to him. You have to come to that place where you recognize there's something insufficient in me. I can't fix me. I've tried to be the me that I want to be and I can't. I fail ultimately all the time. That's showing you you need a savior. You need someone to pull you out of that. And that's what Jesus has done. What do I do at the next point? You accept it. You repent of your sin. You say, I want to turn away. Repent means to turn away from. Because I want to turn away from the way I used to live. I don't want it to be about me anymore. I want to move out of that seat. And I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And that happens with a prayer. Why don't we just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here this morning and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, it's this simple. You pray a prayer like this. You can make it your own. It's not enough for you to listen to the prayer that I'm praying. I'm going to pray as an example for you. But the Bible says you have to confess with your mouth and you have to believe in your heart. Pray a prayer like this. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I invite you into my life. I choose you as my Lord and my Savior. And I thank you that now I have a relationship with your Father, my God, through the sacrifice you made on the cross for me. Come into my life and change me forever. And I look forward to becoming incrementally more like you with every breath you privilege me to breathe for the rest of my life. In your name I pray. Amen.